0: You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hey, Pharmacy Podcast Nation, you got to listen in every Tuesday to stay up to date on the most recent medication therapy topics. Game Changers creates awareness about pharmacotherapy and clinical practice changes that can significantly impact pharmacy practice. Every Tuesday, a new episode of Game Changers is published on the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening. And always remember, the pharmacist is the hub of healthcare. To another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, professor of pharmacy practice at Drake University. Uh, Welcome. Um, Hope uh, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, things are going okay for you. We are actually celebrating today. It's hard to believe that this is uh, the one year anniversary of the start of us doing Game Changers. And I do want to take a second before we uh, get into our whirlwind topics to to say thank you. Thank you to everybody who's taken the time to listen, to subscribe, to tell a friend, to tell an enemy, to tell somebody. And, 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 and uh, again, get people to, to spread the word about it. We've actually uh, garnered uh, somewhat of a following, as I understand it. When we take a look at our numbers, and, and I'm I'm glad to see that, and, and I'm hopeful that the people who listen feel like this is a, this is a uh, uh, a podcast that gives them something in a, in in that they can use clinically and and, and is practical and and is just you know helpful and, and and decent to listen to and all those things. So again, thank you very much uh, for 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 uh, uh, making us uh, as popular as as we're getting to be. We we, we, do, we really do appreciate that. And, and uh, thank you for, uh, for, for you know, basically just, just listening. So uh, as always, though, continue to do that. Continue to, to if you haven't already had a chance to, to, to head over to subscribe and, and like our podcast, please do. And I think most importantly of all, of course, head over to our uh, uh, producer CE Impact because that's where you actually get the CE for uh, listening to these talks and uh, for a lot of other stuff as well. And uh, CE Impact has, has a wide variety of terrific CE programs and very reasonable prices. Something that you should check out for the pharmacists that are listening. So today we thought, uh, uh, since it's our one-year anniversary, we're going to do what what uh, many f- students over the years have told me I do best, which is talk very fast. So <laughs> we are going to do three very quick kind of uh, medical pearls. One of one of my favorite uh, 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 grand rounds uh, over the years when we've had residents do them is kind of medical myths, you know, busted or myth medical myth busting or whatever you want didn't want to kind of want to call it. And and it's really where we just take things that are kind of, you know, you know in the general gestalt or general knowledge base of of, of, of clinicians out there and letting them know that maybe what they know, uh, to, to paraphrase, just isn't so, right? So we are going to do three of these kind of quick medical myth busters and, and and just kind of go one, two, three on them. So let's go ahead and get started. And the first one is about oral iron. And this obviously is something that 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 community pharmacists in particular deal with every single day where patients are coming in saying, you know, yeah, my doctor told me to put me, me on iron, Iron. What do you What do you recommend? When I came out of school, yes, a million years ago, um, it, you know, I was certainly taught that that uh, the the uh, way to replete iron is is basically to to give daily iron, and, and since most people can't take uh a, you know an entire day iron at one time, split it up two or three times a day to help with 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 side effects, and you know that that uh, you wanted to kind of try and give so much elemental iron per day to help and, and help uh, get uh, the iron deficiency anemia resolved as quickly as possible um and even now when you take a look at at the at the uh uh, um, uh, instructions for a lot of the over-counter iron products, they say take you know twice a day, take three times a day. And um, again, most pharmacists know that that there's no way patients can tolerate three times a day iron, and many can't even tolerate twice a day iron. So it was always a struggle to get people to do that. Well, the good news is that there's uh, evidence in the last three or four years to suggest that not only does that, we don't need to do that, uh, that in fact, dosing daily or, or even preferentially every other day may actually give you more iron absorption, obviously far less side effects. And the reason for that is is that we, we know that, that one of the things that ha- one of the chemicals the body produces uh, or a protein the body produces uh, called hepcidin is 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 crucial to iron absorption. And in fact, hepcidin has a whole bunch of effects on on uh, uh, iron uh, regulation and, and iron circulation throughout the body. Um, it, it inhibits a, a, another protein called ferroprotein, and by doing that, it it basically um, um, uh, prevents enterocytes from allowing iron to enter into the liver. And that reduces a dietary iron absorption. It also uh, um, uh, causes iron release uh, uh, from uh, macrophages, because that's one of the places where where iron is stored. And so, during conditions where the hepcidin level is is high, such as inflammation, serum iron levels fall due to iron trapping in my, macrophages and liver cells, and decreased gut absorption. And so, uh, when when you have a high hepcidin level, we know that that uh, that uh, you're basically just not going to absorb iron because your body kind of thinks, hey, I've got enough. I don't need anymore. And this theory was 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 tested out in a study that came out a couple of years ago where they where they actually looked at radio labeled iron and they managed to uh, get some healthy uh, women to enroll in a study in Switzerland where they where they basically gave them uh, oral uh, radio labeled iron and they were actually divided up into two groups and one group was uh, people who got iron every day and the other group uh, was given on on iron every other day um, and there was a couple they had a couple Small studies where they kind of took a look at different iron uh, um, regimens, but really they were uh, daily and every other day, and basically found that that uh, or, uh, oral iron absorption and hepcidin levels actually were better on the alternate day group. So you have this, so uh, uh, women in the study actually had a higher iron absorption by about forty milligrams um, if they took iron every other day as opposed to iron every day, um, and they also found that hepcidin levels were were much higher in the in the people taking iron every day than every other day. So there definitely was some biologic plausibility about why that would be. But of course, does that actually translate into actual with people with iron deficiency anemia? And the answer is yes. There's been now a couple of studies and the one I pulled was published in 2018 that, 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 that took a look at, at uh, uh, giving iron daily versus every other day. And they wanted to look at at basically effectiveness and 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 uh, uh, side effects. And so they had uh, basically two groups and uh, in, in for th- uh, 28 days, group one received iron sulfate twice a day i'm sorry it was three groups a group two received uh, iron sulfate once a day and group three received iron sulfate every other day so um and and the doses were similar or, or except for the twice a day where total elemental iron was 160 milligrams a day and then the other groups were were 80 a day or every other day and then they basically just compared uh hemoglobin levels and ferritin in these groups and basically found that there was no statistically significant difference between uh, hemoglobin increases and ferritin levels Levels, um, um, uh, in uh, uh, the different groups, they found that that the ferritin level in group in the first group who received twice the day iron was a little bit higher, but probably not statistically significant. But as far as you know, what we really want in in a in, in a treatment for iron deficiency anemia, we want the anemia to go away. Hemoglobin levels were were, were essentially the exact same. So uh, um, because of that, and the fact that in the study they found that gastrointestinal side effects were a big surprise, much uh, higher in the patients who took daily iron compared. Every other day, uh, their recommendations actually were, were to take iron every other day, as opposed to iron daily or twice a day, and you get the same levels of effectiveness and lower rates of, of GI side effects. So, I think what you know, if I'm a community pharmacist, you know, I think something kind of take away from this is that uh, I think we have pretty good data now that shows, again, just what we thought we knew just isn't so. That, that that taking iron multiple times a day and trying to you know to can you know cajole and convince your your patients that this was something that we needed to do to make sure they're they're Got enough iron so their hemoglobin would rapidly rise. It just isn't isn't so. And so I think we can feel pretty good now that at a minimum you can tell patients, hey, look, really you only need to take one tablet of iron a day. And in fact, if you really want to start off with iron every other day, we actually have some some uh, some studies that suggest that that it's you're still going to get all the iron you need, that your anemia is going to resolve, and you're probably going to have far less side effects. So I think uh, uh, that is something that is is a is a pretty big deal, and and certainly even now, even though these studies have been out for a couple of years, um, I think has not really permeated into the general medical consciousness, if, if you will, and I still see a lot of people getting twice a day and 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 sometimes even three times a day iron, and, and it just really probably isn't necessary, so that is our first medical myth busted. Our second medical myth busted is uh, uh, something I've been on a soapbox about for, for many, many years, and uh, anyone who's had me as a student or a resident over the years knows is something I jump up and down about a little bit on, on rounds, and that's, that's uh, uh, metric. Metronidazole and ethanol, right? So people who are on a metronidazole we're always counseling them. And I'm sure, you know, you probably have a sticker for the community pharmacist that they stick on the tablets of Flagyl when they're taking them that says, don't drink alcohol with this because it could cause a disulfiram-like reaction. Remember, for those of you who don't know what disulfiram is, which probably isn't too many people, it is, of course, used in the treatment of alcoholism and it actually triggers basically a, 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 a GI side effects, flushing, sometimes even hypotension and nausea by basically inhibiting a, uh, um, uh, aldehyde dehydrogenase, which leads to the elevation of blood acetaldehyde concentrations after ethanol intake, and this causes again the unpleasant side effects that theoretically makes people not want to drink. My personal opinion has always been that disulfiram doesn't work all that well for alcohol cessation, but that's a whole other game changer. But supposedly, we you know we would we would always tell people, and I was certainly taught in school, you know, flageolet can cause the same reaction. So people are taking metronidazole for you know C diff or whatever they're taking. If or they shouldn't drink while, while they're taking it. And that was always kind of strange because studies had found that flagell actually doesn't increase uh, uh, aldehyde dehydrogenase levels so um, you know, or or aldehyde concentrations in animals. So it was like, well, then why would it cause this disulfiram-like reaction if it doesn't do what disulfiram does? And so there was really not a whole lot of explanation for, for why this would be. And so some intrepid investigators, and, and I will definitely give them props for this because I'm, I'm not sure you could have could have gotten this study through an IRB, uh, at least in my neck of the woods, and this was a study done in Finland back in 2002, so it's been around for a long, long time, and uh, they they took uh, some healthy males. Uh, they don't say in the paper, but I've, I've heard tell kind of uh, through through the rumor mill that they were they were medical students who, are, who volunteered. That may be true. I mean, um, it, when you hear about the study, you may think to yourself, it may have been, it may have not been that hard to get people to volunteer for the study, but what they basically did is they, they, they took some healthy volunteers, and it was a double-blind study. One half received metronidazole for five days, and the other half received placebo. You could argue about you know are you could you really blind the study? Metronidazole is known for for causing metallic taste and stuff like that, but it is what it is. They they did they did mention it was a placebo controlled study, and what they did was they after five days of being on the study, they then received uh, uh, ethanol uh, 0.4 grams per kilogram. I would assume as as some sort of of, of cocktail or or liquid drink uh, that uh, 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 then, then they basically took a look at uh, their blood levels for blood acetate. Uh, Acetaldehyde levels and ethanol concentrations. They also monitored them for any of the any of the disulfiram-like reactions that you would think would occur. So they looked at blood pressure, heart rate, skin temperature, uh, nausea and vomiting, you know, flushing, all that other stuff. They actually completed a questionnaire, and what they basically found, in a nutshell, was that flagyl and didn't have any problems with alcohol in this in this cohort. So basically, it did. There was no problem. So uh, metronidazole did not raise a, a blood acetaldehyde levels, nor had any objective or subjective side effects when taken together with with that. So again, I'm not running around saying that we need to tell patients that they need to go on a bender when they start taking t- taking a, a flagyl. Certainly not. But um, I, I do wonder about what what has, has has become almost a mantra. I think among I mean certainly pharmacists when we're counseling patients with flagyl that you know is this really that big of a deal? And I think that I think that really that the the balance of the evidence actually suggests that that this is probably a a, a not common uh, at all sort of interaction and it really doesn't have any biologic plausibility. Ability associated with it. So all those things together make you wonder, is it that big of a deal? I think you can certainly still tell patients, gee, you know, you know, the, uh, uh this is certainly what is is kind of recommended but you know recent studies or I guess not so recent studies have suggested that this probably isn't as a big deal you don't need to go out of your way to drink but certainly you know a glass of wine if you usually have that with dinner or something along those lines while you're taking metronidazole is probably fine to continue Um, I know some community pharmacists I'm friends with have patients come to them with metronidazole uh, uh, gel for acne and ask them about the same thing obviously that's probably not going to happen either if the oral metronidazole didn't cause a problem probably topical is probably not going to, to cause an issue as well. So kind of an interesting thing. And again, it's something whenever I, I talk about bugs and drugs on, on uh, my medical service, I certainly kind of point out that, that again, another issue, another idea of what we thought was, uh, so, uh what we thought we knew just really isn't, isn't the truth. So, and then finally, the last medical myth we're going to bust really quick is, uh, uh tryptans and serotonin syndrome. And, um, you know, it certainly stands to reason why patients uh, who are receiving tryptans, which, of course, are serotonergic agonists, might be at increased risk for serotonin syndrome, right? Because, again, a lot of patients who have migraines might potentially be on other serotonergic agents for a variety of reasons. And in 2006, the FDA actually had an alert and is actually in in the package insert uh, of of tryptans about life-threatening risks of serotonin syndrome when tryptans are used in combination with SSRIs or SNRIs. So, and that's been out as since, since two thousand six, and um, um, there, there, there were a couple of, of studies and, and uh, you know papers after the fact that we really wanted to kind of differentiate. Well, gee, you know, is is this true? And if it is true, you know, how common is it? And one of the problems always with serotonin syndrome is that, it, and I've seen this in my own practice, is that serotonin syndrome is often misclassified. Sometimes I think we tend to forget that, that serotonin syndrome actually has you know standardized criteria for its diagnosis, and the most common criteria is the Hunter criteria, and and, and people who have serotonin syndrome via the Hunter criteria have, you know, pretty severe symptoms. They usually, you know, have fever, they usually have an encephalopathy. So they're kind of goofy. It don't make sense. They often have rigidity or clonus. And, and I was always kind of taught that, you know, uh, if, if you're looking for, for, uh, serotonin syndrome, if somebody has ocular myoclonus where their eyes are kind of, you know, uh, you know, you know, vibrating almost, uh, that, that actually is almost pathonomic for, 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 serotonin syndrome. And so, you know, the, that always makes it difficult to study these sort of things because, you know, these are reports, but were these reports actually, you know, serotonin syndrome by objective criteria? And so a, uh, the American Headache Society actually uh, commissioned their own uh, 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 review of this and and they actually took a look at the time uh, the, the this FDA uh, um, warning came on the basis of 29 cases of supposed serotonin syndrome. And so they uh, were able to, you know, take a look at, at the actual charts of these 29 patients' Released the reports of these 29 cases and found that none of them actually uh, met the Hunter's uh, serotonin uh, toxicity criteria. And they actually looked at another criteria, and only 11 of the 29 of those cases uh, met the criteria for, for for serotonin syndrome. So there, the, the American Headache Society kind of felt like, well, gee, you know, the, there was this there's this report of serotonin syndrome, but um, um, you know, the, the, when you really did, did a deep dive into this, it didn't really meet the criteria for true serotonin syndrome. And that's not. To say people may not get serotonin you know uh, symptoms or toxicity where they might get things like you know uh, you know sweating or or headache or you know uh, you know tr- sometimes a tremor just kind of feeling kind of weird and stuff like that certainly people can can complain of that stuff but none of that is life-threatening Whereas serotonin syndrome can absolutely be life-threatening so that paper uh, that came out a few years after uh, the 2006 um, uh, um, FDA warning said you know gee we we're not really sure that 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 uh the the basis of this warning is, is really valid. But again, that they just kind of took a look at that. And as we all know, was, you know, side effects tend to be underreported to the FDA. So a few years later, um, a large uh, registry study was done and, and it looked at electronic health record data from par- the partners research data registry, which is an, uh, one of the very large data registries. This one is based in, in the Northeast. And so this is a lot of patients in, in, in the Massachusetts and other, another, uh, um, um New England area, and what they did is is they took a look at at, at from this this uh, data draw. They took a look at everybody who had been co-prescribed triptans and either an SSRI or an SNRI, actually for a 14 year period, so, so quite a long time. And then they also uh, uh, then looked to see if if uh, that there was any uh, definite definitions of serotonin syndrome with these patients. So basically, the incidence of serotonin syndrome. And what they found was, not surprisingly, they 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 they, they uh, in that long a period. They actually had 48,000 unique patients who they who they identified were prescribed triptans during the 14-year study, and of those 48,000, almost 20,000, so almost half, uh, were pers- co-prescribed uh, uh, SSRIs or SNRIs uh, 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 during this during that 14-year period, with a total of about 31,000 uh, uh, patient years of exposure. Uh, they found that that only two patients out of that entire group were classified as having definite serotonin syndrome, so an incidence of only 0. 0.6 cases per 10,000 patient years of exposure and uh, they now they did find that, that some patients did have serotonin symptoms so they had serotonin toxicity but only a very small percentage of patients actually met the the, the hunter uh, criteria for serotonin syndrome and so they found that 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 the, that the actual uh, um, um, overall incidence was very low they also found I don't know if that's if it's surprising or not that that the uh, uh, since this study did uh, uh, encompass time before and after after the FDA uh, warning, they wanted to see, you know, gee, after the FDA made this warning, did the co-prescription of triptans and and SSRIs and SNRIs decrease? And they actually found no; it actually increased. It went from 21 to 29 percent. So I guess this is a case where people weren't exactly listening to the FDA. Uh, so what they kind of came came across with is that they found like the risk of serotonin syndrome associated with concomitant use of triptans and, and SSRIs and SNRIs was was vanishingly low, uh, and they found that 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 co-prescription was common and it didn't decrease after the 2006 FDA advisory. So their, their, their literal quote from the paper is, our results cast doubt on the validity of the FDA advisory and suggest that it should be reconsidered. Again, for, for the, ph- especially the community pharmacist there, I'm not suggesting that, that we ignore, you know, the potential of serotonin toxicity. And certainly we have patients who are not just on SSRIs and SNRIs and triptans, but multiple serotonergic agents. And, and we do need to warn patients about the potential for serotonergic toxicity and some of the symptoms we talked about, but um, it's been monitored experience and I've been working in, in ICUs for a long, long time, that, that's, that true serotonin syndrome is really, really rare. And and when you think about it, that just stands to reason. I mean we must have millions of patients in the United States, probably and worldwide, who are on serotonergic agents. And I can count on probably two hands in, in my almost 30 years of being a pharmacist where we knew for sure that somebody had serotonin syndrome based on, on the Hunter criteria or the Steinbach criteria. And so you know when you think about I think about the millions of patients on serotonin drugs, yeah, it stands to reason that that the overall incidence is just vanishingly low. I think we warn patients about the potential of, of serotonin toxicity, but I don't think we need to necessarily scare patients about, you know, gee, this could happen and this is life-threatening. You know, yes, certainly that could happen, but it's, it is it, it is vanishingly rare. And I suspect in many patients who have, say, both migraine and concomitant and depression, that the benefits probably outweigh the risks. So, three medical myths busted. I hope this is a, 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 a format you guys like. I've always liked it when when I was I attended Grand Rounds because it's kind of rapid fire, and it kind of gives you some, some information you can use. Uh, the studies that we talk about will be in the show notes or the, the links for them, so you'll be able to take a look at those and not just take my word for it. And, uh, and hopefully you'll be able to find some of this information interesting in your practice. So we will wrap up in just a second after a word from our uh, producer CE Impact.: Are you looking for a place to collaborate with your pharmacy peers? and get CE, CE Impact is excited to announce that we've recently launched the CE Impact Learning Network just for this purpose. The CE Impact Learning Network is a place where pharmacists and pharmacy technicians can take CE courses, attend virtual events, and network with your peers in a professional way. You can do all of this right from your phone. Download our free CE Impact app from the App Store today and join us. Uh, thank you to all of you who have been listening to us this first season. Uh, we, we've we've had a great response and we're so grateful to all of you who take the time to listen to us. Um, we are going to take a couple of week break as we head for season two, but head over to CE Impact and uh, you'll get all the information about what we've got planned for season two, how you can access us and where we go from here. So please head over to CE Impact and do that and we will be joining you again very shortly. Thank you. Thanks for listening in to Game Changers each week. It's easy to get CE for today's podcasts. Just go to ceimpact.com and purchase a pharmacist subscription. The link is in the show notes.